good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. So, so glad you're here. So good to be with you. Welcome those of you over in East Hall, those of you tuning in. Uh, welcome. All right, let me start with a just because story. I uh, love that you all grab on to our different initiatives and go out and do it. We have decided to try to blanket this area with acts of kindness and generosity in hopes that it actually impacts people when they need it the most. And now we're getting stories that start to flow in. And let me read you the story for today. This is from Deb in Streetsboro. She says, I'm still standing in the grocery store in tears. It takes my breath away, the kindness of strangers, especially in today's world of disconnect. It's easy to look away or judge. Sadly, many would rather post on social media instead of interacting physically or emotionally with anyone, family included. When someone takes the time to listen, to be compassionate, and then without a thought gives you $40 to help with groceries, it takes your breath away. Saying I'm humbled by you, Laura, isn't enough. You didn't have to help us out today, but you did. Because of you, I had enough money to get all the things our family of five needed. The stress can be heavy sometimes, but this load has been lifted by you. What a kind, loving heart you have. I think you too have kids. How lucky they are to have you as a mom. You will raise them to follow your example. Our world desperately needs more people like you. I will pass this card on with a grateful heart. You are an angel in disguise, Laura. How cool is that? That is, uh, I absolutely love that. Want us to continue to do that. I will confess to you, I have not done it just because yet. I keep forgetting. I have the cards in my car, but this week I am going to do some kind of just because. And I hope you will join me if you haven't done it yet. The world needs us now. All right. Okay. We are in this seven week series on first John. Uh, First John was written by the disciple John when he was toward the end of his life as an old man. He was known as the disciple of love. And so we are calling this series letter of love and it fits into our theme. Love matters most, but don't miss out. Don't miss the, uh, the, the fact that he was an old man when he wrote this. Because a lot of people, as they get older, get crankier, right? But not John. John gets more kind, more loving, more gracious. And my guess is, however old you are, you want to grow older like that and become more kind, more loving, more gracious too. And here in this letter, John is giving us the secret. All right, so let me read the passage for today, and it's 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. I'll read through chapter 2, verse 2. It'll come up on the screen uh, as I read. This is what it says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word, and it's true. I love that passage. Let me give you the three points I want to cover. I want to talk about a warning, three tests, and the only real solution. A warning, three tests, and the only real solution. First, a warning. John begins by giving us a warning. He actually doubles down on the warning. In verse 8, he gives us a warning about deceiving ourselves. In verse 10, he gives us a warning about calling God a liar. Now, my guess is that very few people would have enough courage to call God a liar to his face. But John begins this letter by telling us, all of us, that we are in danger of doing that, that we have a proclivity to do that. And that's why he is giving us a warning. Now, this is kind of the the beginning of what is wrong with our world and what is wrong with you and what is wrong with me. That's why I've titled this message, You're a Mess. (laughs) You're a Mess. And if you are not yet a Christian, this is a good message for you. And the reason it's a good message for you is because a lot of the mistakes people make with Christianity start right here. And if you are a Christian, this is a good message for you because this is where your Christianity kind of goes off the rails. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me or write me that they want more meat in a sermon. And I, uh, I don't really know exactly what they mean by that. I don't know if they know what they mean by that. But this should give you plenty to chew on because what John is giving us is not just how to be a Christian, but how to be a mature Christian. And this is not a lesson that you can learn once and fold it up and put it in your back pocket. This is something you have to constantly be relearning because of the deception involved. The warning that he gives is terrifying, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. It's terrifying because he says this, that there are people who think they know God and don't. And there are people who think that they are right with God and aren't. And the reason that they don't know that is because they have a blind spot. And the definition of a blind spot is something that you cannot see. And what he is saying is that deception begins with the way that we view ourselves. That all of us want to see ourselves as being better than we actually are. And I think that comes out of a misunderstanding or a limited kind of definition of sin. So let me explain what I mean. Let me do just a little bit of an exercise. I want you to think of a sin that you have committed in the last 24 hours. I just, go ahead, think of that sin. Something that you did that you shouldn't have done, something that you said that you shouldn't have said, something that you didn't do that you should have done, something that you didn't say that you should have said. Okay, got it? All right, now tell your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You don't have to. That's my big joke. Uh, No. Okay, you got that in your head, right? Now think of another one. Now think of 10. If you're like me, it's hard to list out 10 things that you've done in the last... 24 hours. And the reason is because we think of sin as something that we do, that we actually break 
a commandment of God that we disobey God. And that's one way to look at sin. It's like uh, having a three-year-old that you, uh, you have a plate of cookies and you tell the three-year-old, hey, don't take a cookie. You leave the room, can't come back, and they're eating the cookie. And you're going, ah, right? That's disobedience. That's the sin. That's the way we think about sin. But if you have ever watched a three-year-old for any length of time, you realize there's something else going on in their little heads and hearts, right? And it's deeper than just doing a single sin of disobedience. Cross the will of a three-year-old, right? Tell a three-year-old no, right? Take something away from them. Put them to bed before they're asleep. You parents who put your three-year-old to bed after they're asleep, you're cheating, right? Try to put them to bed before they're asleep. See what happens. Make them eat all the vegetables that they don't, they don't want to eat before they get down from the table. And what you will find is you will have a battle. And you'll have a battle because in every fiber of their being, a three-year-old wants to be in charge. A three-year-old wants what they want. And it matters not that you are the parents who gave them life and you are older and wiser than they are. And that wouldn't be such a big deal if it was only true of three-year-olds. May I use this illustration? Because a three-year-old who just wants what they want is like a, an ant the size of an ant. Now you have an ant the size of an ant, no real threat because it can't do that much damage, right? But if you get a 40-year-old that wants what they want, that wants to be in control, well, that's more like an ant the size of a dog. And that's what horror movies are made of, you know, with big old pinchers and something that you would run from. And when I say, this is what is wrong with our world and this is what is wrong with you and what is wrong with me, this is what I mean. Because what is going on in the heart of a three-year-old is different than just a single act of disobedience. John, in this passage, actually describes sin two different ways. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 8, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Two different things. Verse 10, he says, talks about sinning. Okay, that's breaking the rules. That's the way we usually think about sin. But verse 8, he says, if we say we don't have sin, not that we do sin, but that we have sin. And that's something different. Go back to the three-year-old. The three-year-old, when they decide to take the cookie and they do the sin of disobedience, the question is, why? And the answer is, because deep down in their heart, they truly believe that their parents should not be in charge. So the sin of disobedience is just a symptom of a deeper disease, of a deeper disease. Let me use this. This is an acorn. Somebody actually made this for me, so it's a big acorn so you can see it. But imagine like a, a normal acorn that falls from an oak tree. And I've told you before that in, a, in an acorn, any acorn that you pick up off the ground, there is an ocean of wood in that acorn, right? Because if that acorn falls into the right kind of soil, 
has the right amount of moisture and the right amount of sunlight, it will explode into an oak tree. And on that oak tree will be thousands of acorns. And if each one of those acorns falls into the right kind of soil and has the right amount of moisture and the right amount of sunlight, it will explode into an oak tree. And on that oak tree will be thousands of acorns. Inside of every single acorn, there is an ocean of wood. The Bible says your heart is like an acorn, and inside your heart is an ocean of evil. And the fact that you haven't done more sins that you can name within the last 24 hours is only because you're not in the right soil, with the right amount of moisture and the right amount of sunlight. And the reason that is so hard to believe, according to John, is that you're deceived. You're deceived. You, you want to believe that you are a better person than the people who are rioting in Portland and that you are, have a better heart than the officer that knelt on George Floyd's neck. And the Bible says your heart has the same fatal flaw. Your heart is that which wants what you want. You want to usurp God's place. You are like a three-year-old who says, I want to be in charge. And that's what the Bible says is so important. Do you see how important that is? You see how hard that is? Why aren't people running to Jesus to be their savior? Why is it that you don't love Jesus more? Why is it that I don't love Jesus more? This is why. Because deep down, I do not see the depth of my own sin. And you don't either. Probably. Now, I'll give you three tests that will help determine whether you are struggling with this or whether this can help you. The first test is this. When a, a person who's a Christian believes that every human heart, uh, inside of every human heart, there's an ocean of sin waiting to explode, then uh, what's going on in the world doesn't throw us off. It doesn't wipe us out. We don't look at what's going on in America and just pull our hair out and just going, I can't understand why this is happening. Because a Christian is this weird kind of combination of an optimist and a pessimist. We are optimistic in that even though we believe that human beings have this heart that is an ocean of sin, we believe that God loved us so much he sent Jesus and that Jesus is the ultimate solution to our hearts and that the story ends well because of that but we are pessimists in the, in the way that we do not believe that human beings are inherently good. So we don't expect them. We don't expect society or government or some system to create a utopia that we all long for. Uh, Dorothy Sayer is an author. I like the way she puts it. She says this in one of her books. A young and intelligent priest remarked to me the other day that he thought one of the greatest sources of strength in Christianity today lay in the profoundly pessimistic view it took of the human nature. There's a great deal in what he says. The people who are most discouraged and made despondent by the barbarity and stupidity of human behavior at this time are those who cling to an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. To them, the appalling outburst of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states and the obstinate selfishness and stupid greed of capitalist society are not merely shocking and alarming. 
For them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they have believed. It is as though the bottom had dropped out of their universe. Now for the Christian, this is not the case. He is as deeply shocked and grieved as anybody else, but he's not astonished. He has been accustomed to the idea that there's a deep interior dislocation in the very center of the human personality. If we do not believe and really believe that inside of every human heart is this ocean of evil, we will have a tendency to divide people into camps, people with good hearts, people with bad hearts. And you see that all the time in our culture. You have people that say, oh, the liberals have bad hearts and the conservatives have good hearts. No, the conservative has good, good heart or a bad heart and the liberal has the good heart. And what Christianity says is this, that the reason we think that is because we are deceived. That's the first thing. The second test is this, and this is the big one, that when you believe that your heart and your problem of sin is not just something that you do, it's the disposition of your heart, that means that you will never look down on anybody. You will never feel superior to anybody. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of statistics that should be alarming if you're a Christian. There are people who are polled, and 87% of non-Christians who are polled view Christians as judgmental. 87% of non-Christians view Christians as judgmental. Here's this one. 52% of Christians view other Christians as judgmental. And you want to go, how can that happen? How can that happen with a group of people who know that they are sinful and that their heart is broken beyond repair, but God still loved them, sent his son Jesus to die and resurrect for them, and he gives them life as a gift completely undeserved. How can it happen that that group of people could ever be seen as judgmental And the answer is, we're deceived. We might have started out like that, but then the more we start to follow Christ, the more we go to church, the the better we feel about ourselves, then we begin to look down on other people. You know how in the, the, the game Monopoly, you know, you can land on a square that says, do not pass go, do not collect $200. The next time you are tempted to post something on social media, or to say something about someone and you feel superior to them as you are thinking about saying it or thinking about posting it, stop. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Go back to first John. This is what I mean by this is a good message for those of us who are Christians because this is something you have to constantly be aware of, to constantly see yourself, it's interesting. In between services, I got an email from somebody and his email just smacked of being superior. It's just shocking, right? But it happens. That's the way it works. Right? So the third, uh, the third test is this. If you really believe this about your heart, then you will be desperate for a savior. Absolutely desperate for a savior because you will be giving up on the ludicrous idea that you're a pretty good person and that God, when he sees how good a person you are, you'll be square with God and he'll be okay with you when you meet him face to face. You will absolutely abandon that 
because you'll realize the depth of your own selfishness. You'll realize that deep down you have wanted to usurp God, ignore God, that you have blasphemed against God every time you have railed at him for not giving you something you desperately wanted him to give you or for putting something in your life you desperately didn't want to have in your life. And every time you have raised your fist at God, you have blasphemed him. And when you see the depth of your own sinfulness, it will fill you with dread, with a terror of what it will be like to stand before almighty God and give an account without someone to stand with you, without someone to speak for you. Now that brings me to the third point, the only real solution, the only real solution. John says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think a lot of people misunderstand forgiveness. I think a lot of people feel like they should be able to go to God and tell God, listen, I screwed up. Uh, I'm sorry, forgive me. And that God somehow is obligated to forgive them. Like God would hear you say you're sorry and go, oh, well, you said you were sorry. So I guess I have to forgive you. So thanks for coming in, you knucklehead. Now get out of here, right? But this is what is true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anywhere that God forgives anyone just because they ask. Let me say it again. There is no place in the Bible that says that God forgives anyone just because they ask. There is always a price. There is always a sacrifice. That's why the entire Old Testament is littered with sacrifices for sin, right? And the reason is this, that, you know, where, where it says this, when he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When he says advocate, he is calling in the language of a courtroom. And what he's saying is this, when you come into the court of God, where God is the judge, you better make sure that Jesus is with you that Jesus is with you. In 1945, at the end of World War II, they had the trials of, uh, for the Nazi party in Nuremberg, Germany. And they had this tribunal that were judging these people for crimes against humanity. Can you imagine what it'd be like for the commandant of Dachau concentration camp that slaughtered thousands upon tens of thousands of people in those concentration camps? For him to stand up and say this, listen, I screwed up, I'm sorry, forgive me. And the tribunal look at each other and go, well, he did say he's sorry, so I guess you're forgiven. Get out of here, you Nazi knucklehead. You know, we love you. It's nuts, it's nuts. When he says that Jesus is our advocate, this is why John says this is the only real solution. Once you realize the depth of your own sin in your heart, you need Jesus as your advocate. An advocate is a legal proxy. It's like an attorney. If I have an attorney, the attorney speaks for me. I don't even have to be there. I am in my attorney. And when it says, this is what Jesus says. See that word propitiation? That's a word for atonement. It's a word for sacrifice. What Jesus says is this. When I stand before God, Jesus is going to say to God, this is Joe's heart this ocean of evil, and I have taken his heart as my own. 
And I took his heart to the cross and I paid for him with my blood. And I have given him my heart of purity and love. And I want you to judge him based on that. Do you see? Do you see how that is the only hope I have to ever be really honest about myself? It's my only hope to quit trying to feel better about myself than other people. It's my only hope to not feel superior to people all the time. Cheers too. But more than that, it's my only hope to really ever love Jesus. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I don't know how you feel about Jesus right now. But I know for me, there are times where I go, man, I should love him more. This is what will make me love him more. This is what will make you love him more. This is John at the end of his life trying to explain to us what has happened to him. And he's explaining to us the depth of the problem first. He's saying, you are a mess. And until you acknowledge who you are and what you are, you will never see who Jesus is and what he is. But once you see that, then you will love him like you never have before. And when you love Jesus like that, you will begin to love each other. So great is the love of Jesus for us. Now, as we take communion, I want us to just be reminded of Jesus' love. And my hope is that this morning, by the time you leave, you will love him a little more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know deep down inside of myself that I am constantly uh, struggling with this deception feeling like I'm a better person than I am or trying to look down on other people. And this is a reminder from John, one of your disciples, to see myself as I really am with a heart that is an ocean of sin, if put in the right place, with the right circumstances, but that you came for me even so. And you are my advocate. And because you are my advocate and my sacrifice, then I can come before God and be accepted and loved by him. I pray as we take communion that you will increase our understanding of who we are and what we are so that you can increase our understanding of who you are and what you are and help us to fall more deeply in love with you today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.